Welcome back to the Exit Avila podcast. I'm your host, Adam Cohen, and on today's episode stars Dean Peterson, a former ninth round pick for the Boston Red Sox who played in their organization from 1993 to 1997. Additionally, he was inducted into the Allegheny College Hall of Fame in 2008, has been assistant coach for Allegheny since 2019. Coach Pete, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing great, and thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It means a lot. Yeah, awesome to have this opportunity. I, I, I appreciate you as a person and your passion for the game, and so uh, excited to have a conversation with you. Certainly. So that, that being said, let's begin. I want to start from the beginning of your career at Allegheny College, and my first question to you is what made you want to play baseball at, at Allegheny College in your original college search? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so two factors played into it uh, for me. One um, was just the school. Allegheny is a, a great academic institution. So it was a place where I could go. I actually had aspirations to go to law school at some point. Uh, that didn't quite work out uh, in the grand scheme. But originally, I thought I wanted to go to law school. And Allegheny is awesome at getting people uh, into that pathway. Um, it's not far from home, uh, so that was another convenience. Um, but really, uh, from a baseball standpoint, it came down to I wanted to win a national championship. I wanted to be at a place where I could at least be in a position uh, to compete and play for a national title. Um, I'd received a few, you know, small scholarship offers, you know, a few hundred bucks, basically, you know, enough to pay for some books um, at, at at some D one schools and. I just knew in my heart that those schools were never going to have a chance to go to Omaha. That just was not in the cards for them. And God bless all of those schools because they do great things and they give people an opportunity to play and have outstanding coaches and are passionate about what they do. But there's just a reality that they're, they're they can't stand up to the SEC and ACC and PAC 12 teams. Uh, uh, you know, so um, I, I wanted to win and that was, the, those were the factors for me. Well, those are certainly some excellent factors. As a student at Allegheny College, I love the academics there, and it's so cool to see how that has transpired for several decades and how the school is so known for their academics, but also the fact that you saw that this was going to be a great team and even forego going to a D1 school, which a lot of players um, dream of going to. So when you toured Allegheny, did you see that their team had a great chance of competing and going to perhaps a championship yeah, I think for me, um, when I was on campus and I, you know, I saw I saw a game and uh, definitely saw that I had some work to do uh, to be able to compete at the the level that the guys were were at. But um, I think the the coaching staff was just overwhelmingly compelling. Uh, coach Crehan, uh, who's legendary coach at Allegheny, and he was my coach and. Um, had great success and really built up the program to a, a different level. Um, he was just passionate about winning too. And that was what drove him. And um, so I think there were so many connecting points in, in that passion to win that I was just excited to be a part of it. So remind me, did uh, the teams that you played on, it, well, it was from, what was it? 89 to 93, right? Uh, I, so 91, 91 would have been the first baseball season that I played 91 okay. and 93. So 
Yeah, I some great players uh, in '89 and '90 as well. Some awesome Gator legends, uh, Tim Brustowitz and a few, a few other guys. Uh, Rick Grimm, uh, incredible Hall of Fame players. So mm-hmm. that's awesome. And did your team end up making the playoffs during those years that you played on them? Uh, yeah, my my freshman year was uh, was rough. We had some talent, but just not enough pitching to get over the hump. And uh, some other great teams in our conference were just. They, frankly, they were better than us, uh, but it was good experience for me as a freshman to, to get a little bit of playing time, go out there, get my butt kicked a little bit and uh, realize I had a lot more work to do uh, to compete at that level. And so it motivated me. But um, uh, my sophomore year and then uh, junior year, we made we made the playoffs. So my junior year obviously was the the highlight. Um, we won the, the NCAC regular season. Uh, we had. 17, 18, 19 game uh, winning streak. Uh, I think at the time um, we had the highest winning percentage in Allegheny history. I think we, our regular season record was 36 and four. Um, and uh, I, I, I always tell all of our current guys, I'm like, uh, yeah, you see all those losses, everyone, but one of them is mine. I, I was, I was the one responsible for blowing those games as the closer. Um, so that was rough, but, uh, humbling. You always need to be humbled. Uh, so yeah, we had, <clears throat> ended up making the uh, regional tournament that year. <clears throat> so great season, great players, great players. That's incredible. Well, I was just about to say that how, even though you maybe lost a couple of games, you also were such a huge benefactor to the team. You had the then record for NCAA history with 12 saves, which is incredible. So what was the feeling of like, like closing all those important games for Allegheny? Yeah, I think that was uh, special and, and unique. Um, <laughs> holding records uh, is nice. And uh, again, I, I, I hope, and I believe that we have some guys on our team that can break those records. And I look forward to that. I, I look forward to my name being second or third uh, on some of those lists. That would be awesome. Um, but coach Crehan was a big part of that, um, kind of being innovative, uh, at, at the time, um, college, especially at the division three level, didn't use closers the way that we think of closers being used, uh, now. And so for me, it was, it was a great opportunity to be on the forefront of something different. And, um, I loved, coming to the field each day and knowing, Hey, I might pitch, I might be in a position to help our team win. Uh, so it was a lot like being a position player in that respect. And since that's what I had done for my entire life until I got to Allegheny, um, that was great, uh, transition for me mentally. I think it helped, um, me embrace the role. Um, and you know, to me, it was the ultimate expression of being a great teammate and now selfishly it's nice to be the guy with the ball in your hand at the most important time of a game uh and i love that um but there's also a team component of it to say hey we had we had some really good starting pitchers that got the ball to me and to be able to make sure that they ended up with the w that they deserved uh, meant a lot and um and so it was it was an honor it was uh exciting uh, for sure and lots of lots of things I can go with. I, I, I like the pressure. I, I love guys who like pressure because that's what I liked and thrive in. Um, so uh, neat atmosphere. 
Uh, and it, it helped ultimately, you know, I think that helped me become a pro uh, being in that position. I, I don't, I don't know if I would have stood out as a starting pitcher uh, enough to really get any looks, but being in that unique position, um, people took notice because it leveraged my strengths and, and allowed me to shine. <clears throat> wow. That is truly, truly fascinating. And it's amazing because I know a lot of pitchers there, you know, they get to pitch like once every few days, or if they're even a longer reliever, they might be pitching every other day, but you've got to pitch in that high leverage situation, or you might be expecting to pitch in that high leverage situation every single time you guys went out and played, which is incredible. And how that helped shape your mentality to your professional career. That's also really amazing that your coach Crehan was able to put you in that spot and put you in that great role and helped you develop mentally and physically in order to have that great pro career. Yeah. And I think that's what, you know, great coaches do is they put players in a position where their, their strengths can shine. So first the coach identifies those strengths and helps the player identify and see those strengths. um, And then just finds ways to keep, fanning into flame all, all of those passions and all the things that they do well, and then finding ways for them to succeed that, you know, that's one of the cornerstones I think of what coach crumb has built. And we kind of, you know, in an abbreviated way uh, had a chance to express this year is that, you know, we want to find ways and believe that everybody on our uh, staff on our roster can help us win. And everyone has a role and has a skill set that makes us a better team. Otherwise, frankly, you wouldn't be on the team. Um, so finding and identifying those strengths and then allowing guys to shine in them, that's that's just a special feeling for a coach. Well, you just, well as someone who's behind the scenes with you guys a lot, I think you guys have already done an excellent job of incorporating each and every player to the best of their abilities. And it has to feel as a player, I'm sure you know as a player and as a coach, of knowing your role, knowing when you'll be utilized, and just giving your team the best chance to win. Yeah, I think that you know that's that's something we'll build and we'll get better at. Um, I I heard one first year head coach who I respect a lot talking uh, last night about how he kind of took this approach of year one, I'm, I'm going to observe a lot. I'm going to infuse value where I can, but I'm not going to just topple the apple cart and throw out everything and say, it's my way or the highway. Uh, but there's this gradual process to integrating uh, the things that you see value in. And, and so I think for me this year, I spent a lot of time watching seeing what the culture of Allegheny baseball is right now. Um, Not presuming that it's the same as when I played here or when I I coached before. And now in year, what will be hopefully year two um, pretty soon, you know, we'll start to make some, some minor tweaks um, to adjust and, and really amplify that. I think that that's my greatest value as a coach is, being able to help our, our relief pitchers understand their role, understand how to prepare um, and the mental, the mental game, right? I'm a huge mental game guy. Uh, there's nothing more important in my mind uh, when you don't have your best stuff, when you don't feel very good, which statistically is four out of every five times you, you go out there on, on the bump. Um, 
you've got to find a way to compete and overcome uh, that day's limitations in, in your um, execution uh, physically uh, by being mentally strong. So excited to see that grow. And I think that we have a lot of resources, um, a lot of people that help our athletes be mentally stronger, um, not just in our coaching staff, but in the environment of our school. I, I don't think people think of it in those terms, but if, if I could actually go around to every professor and uh, all the other folks that are associated with our school, they would start to see rather quickly how they uh, help students build the mental game. What's the old adage? Baseball is 90% half mental from Yogi Vera. Yeah, you know, Yogi always had his uh, great yogiisms, and uh, yeah, it's ninety uh, percent mental, and the other half is uh, physical. So that's what it yeah, is. It was, that's a great line, um, and I think that you know, even though sports science and the physical preparation has exponentially grown in the game, and those things are super valuable. I mean, great strength and conditioning coaches as resources you know, weighted ball programs and uh, biomechanical analysis for pitchers and hitters and, and all of these amazing tools that science has, has helped us uh, discover. But in the end, it's, it's our mind that activates the body. And if the mind is not uh, thinking and processing things properly through a, the right grid of understanding, um, that physical execution is going to lack, even though we've really beaten our bodies up and prepared, you know, with vigor. Um, you've got to, you've got to understand how to con control and navigate emotions on a very individual level. Um, I think initially, you know, sports psychology and, and the mental game was um, very much just this generic think positive thoughts, uh, visualize a good result and, you know, apply that to everybody with a, this broad brush, but we're starting to see more and more that it's uh very personalized, just like a swing or, or a pitching mechanic. Um, you have to have the right um, approach to each individual because we're all different people. The game of baseball has certainly evolved pretty much each and every year at this point, but it's nice to know that like biomechanics or helping baseball players improve even more in the focus on the mental side of baseball, as we talked about, is just so important. So it's nice, although like some of the incorporate these new found corporations of baseball are maybe not be the best things to every single fan, but there are in a lot of ways very useful. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we, we all have our, our, our opinions and we're all entitled to those. Um, and I think that, the advancements in baseball are making baseball a better game because it forces people to see the game in a new way and it adds a depth to it. And I think that this emphasis on the mental game is actually under underpinning a mental health emphasis uh, in sports that's growing. And I think that we all, as a society, could uh, improve uh, our, our mental health. That would be a good, good thing. Exactly. On and off the field, mental health is super important, and that's a good trajectory for all sports and just us as a society as well to keep moving forward. 
Yeah. Well, I do want to get to your minor league career as well. And I first want to start out with what, how you felt when the Red Sox picked you in the ninth round of the 93 draft and they called you. What, what emotions were running through your head during that time? Yeah, I, uh, I think that there were a lot of emotions uh, and then even many that I hadn't I didn't even understand that that I had at the time. I, I had to look back uh, in, in retrospect and kind of flesh those out. But um, initially, it, obviously, you're excited. You you know that's what I had poured my whole life into is you know being a professional baseball player. And so many people have that dream, and um, so to get that call was special. I, it, I felt like that was a validation of all the sacrifice that I had made. And um, you know, I tell my own sons. I'm like, you're going to miss a lot of stuff. You're, you know, when other people are going and having their pool parties and um, whatever it may be, uh, you're going to be on a baseball field or you're going to be in a weight room. You're going to be making sacrifices that other people just aren't prepared to make because that's what it requires. If you're serious about being a professional athlete in any sport or being the best of the best in whatever area it is that you aspire to be the best at, you're going to have, have to sacrifice things. That's just the nature of the beast. So um, I think the first uh, and, and, and greatest feeling was, you know, that sense of, yes, it's been worth it. All of the stuff that I gave up was worth it. Um, I was surprised uh, at the Red Sox. I'd never heard anything from uh, the Red Sox scouting uh, folks while, you know, many other teams had contacted me and, called and interviewed me or came on campus and administered, you know, these psychological evaluation tests that they were doing at the time and um, different things. Um, I never heard anything from the Red Sox, like the Cincinnati Reds, like their, their scout was like, felt like he called me every day. And I, I know it wasn't, yeah. but um, was just very engaged. And I'm like, I'm going, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a red. I'm going to like, this guy loves me and this is going to happen. And so a little bit of shock <laughs> um, in the process too. Um, and really ultimately what it was is the, the Red Sox were, were kind of looking for a particular profile of pitcher. And so I'm, I'm a taller guy. So they're looking for tall sinker slider guys who could keep the ball down in Fenway because they knew that fly balls go out. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, at once I got into the organization, understood the philosophy that it started to make a little bit more sense to me. Um, and then, you know, in, in retrospect, uh, and I, it's been some years later and even being back at, at Allegheny this year, um, and sharing the experience that our seniors had that, you know, their senior season came to an end that they just didn't expect. Um, I've had a process after the fact um, of not really ever having a chance to say goodbye um, to my teammates uh, at Allegheny, but just, yep, I'm, I'm gone. I'm a professional baseball player now. And when you show up on campus and you're putting in your work, uh, I won't be there. And so that was uh something that I didn't realize at the time would be a challenge, but um, 
some years later, I was like, yeah, wow, that was hard. And I never thought about it. So. Well, I think you did a, have done a really good job of describing some of these very underrated aspects of making it into professional baseball, all these sacrifices, so like people, for example, let's say the average person, when they're done with school, they go home, they play video games or they hang out with friends. A lot of people who are trying to go into professional baseball in the professional sports industry, they keep working, they keep grinding, they're staying at the field late every day. And all those sacrifices, it's good to hear that it is worth it because so many young men and women and everyone in between are uh, aspiring to become great sports uh, players and make it in their respective fields. So it's really amazing to see that, um, that their success such as uh, yourself can, uh, they can make it in these really difficult fields. And also the fact of how uh, the recruiting process, like for example, I had no idea that uh, teams would be calling uh, potential draft picks every single day. Like that, that's insane. And that is so cool. And then, only to realize like, Hey, like another team just drafted me out of the blue. So that I wonder how common that is and how uh, these recruiting processes are like for a lot more draft pits. So I'm really glad that you gave uh, me and everyone who's watching this, that insight. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, you, you, you bring up, you bring up a good point and <clears throat> there's just a reality that um, in terms of professional sports um, to be, you know, so I never made it to the major leagues. You know, I got to play at a level of professional baseball, a level, not the highest level, but a level. Um, and so clearly, you know, there's a percentage of people that make it uh, as far as I did to be able to play for an affiliated team in the minor leagues. And then there's that next elite step that are the major league guys that, that have actually been there and, and done that. But it's developing a mindset of sacrifice that then translates into other things, right? So athletes who have that um, then can translate that to other careers. But the same mindset of being the very best can apply to people who want to be doctors or who want to be mortgage consultants whatever uh, you know i think there's there's just something inherently good um about willing be willing being willing to sacrifice to be the best version of yourself in whatever um your field right we we, we need more people who want to be the best versions of themselves and i think that sports has this amazing grasp of how to do that and if more people in the quote unquote general population um, would embrace how, how sports minded people think and act. Um, they would be surprised at the results. Well, that's why I think it's so amazing for uh, minor leaguers. And also you can look at even the college players that you coach, for example, the college players that you coach at, uh, at Allegheny college, our school, a lot of those guys probably won't end up having a professional career, but, just being on a sports team can help them and the mentality of being on a sports team can help them wherever they end up. Um, and if they do go to the, the professional level, that can also help them continue to develop. Yeah. 100% agree. Well said. And did, I'm guessing that you took all that mindset into the minor elites and I'm sure that helped you out throughout the way. So 
what were your some of your favorite moments and highlights throughout your minor league career? Oh boy, <clears throat> um, my minor league career was actually really difficult. <laughs> um, one um, going backwards and being now all of a sudden learning this new process of what it means to be a professional. Um, like I'd kind of figured out <laughs> how to be, how to be a college, uh, athlete. Um, but now that is your professional life is, is a different, different animal. And at that time, I, I don't know how well they do this now, but this, the, the acclimation assimilation process of really like kind of, instructing and giving you some um, guidance on how to be a professional just wasn't there. Um, you just had to figure it out and muddle through it on your own um, or hopefully connect with some, some more veteran guys who'd, who'd been around. Um, I think I, from a, just a pure mindset standpoint, um, I got to say that the, my minor league career, it, that, that wore on my mindset a lot because um at the time, every new year meant a new coaching staff, a new pitcher, pitching coach, and they would all have differing philosophies of how you're going to do it. So, you know, literally I was in the minor leagues for five years and I changed my pitching mechanics every year, every year. Um, and, and so that was, that was frustrating. Uh, and that's what I'm saying that it grinded on my mindset because I had developed this process of preparation. I had developed my system of things that I did to achieve success and immediately. So, you know, when I was at Allegheny velocity increased over time and obviously was at a number that at the time <laughs> was good um, and good enough to, to warrant, you know, breaking that 90 mile an hour barrier was, was the, the Holy grail. Now I've, Frankly, if you're not 95 plus, you can pretty much pack your bags. Um, <clears throat> but so I, I reached that level and I had developed the split finger pitch that was, you know, my my best secondary pitch. And immediately I got um, to Florida day one and the pitching coach is like, yeah, you're not throwing that because that'll hurt your arm. That's our, our philosophy as an organization. So. I literally had to get through my first year of professional baseball throwing a fastball because, and, and like tinkering around on the side and hoping that I could pull off something that was a little bit slower in some version of a changeup, even though, you know, it was like on the fly and man, I got pounded in the New York Penn league. I mean, I was relentlessly beaten like a mule trying to uh, navigate this process year one. And, uh, you know, so then year two, uh, I got with a pitching coach who helped me uh, develop a, a changeup that worked for me, uh, started to introduce the slider, um, you know, and I obviously had the the winner to start working on some of those pitches. And and so, you know, year two was a little bit better. But I, I, if you if you see my career, it doesn't, you know, go, go look at baseballreference.com and you see the stats and it's like this up and down motion of, you know, success failure, success, failure. And frankly, I didn't deal with that very well. Uh, I was used to having success and I thought that the results kind of dictated who I was as a person. And I wore those failures as my identity. 
um, rather than being able to see beyond that and say, no, I, I'm a good baseball player. I've worked hard and I have the ability to do this or no, I'm actually more than a baseball player. I'm actually a human being, a person that has value outside <laughs> of being able to play this game at a certain level. And, and so that, that took me till after baseball uh, and kind of having a spiritual awakening to, to have that understanding of who I am as a person and start to develop into that, that mindset. But um, sacrifice and hard work. Um, those are, for, those are from my parents. You know, my, my dad's a steel worker. My mom worked in a, the auto industry on a, on a factory line. And, you know, when you're from Youngstown, Ohio, that's kind of what your family does. They're either coal miners, farmers, uh, steel workers, or auto workers. That's just kind of what you do. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I think that that part developed into me. And then, you know, the experiencing failure, um, at different levels then started to shape, um, me, um, and then being able to just work hard and chase dreams. Um, that, that was hardwired for sure. That was hardwired for sure. And I think that that has probably had a better effect on all of the things that I've done after baseball than it did um, in the minor leagues. I wish I could have applied it better in the minor leagues. I wish I would have had the perspective and the refinement in that mindset to, to identify things and, and go do them um, with excellence, but yet not connecting them um, to my identity as much. I think I probably would have navigated it a little bit better. I think the general public or the people who are watching this don't understand how difficult it is to make in the minor leagues. And I think you're doing an excellent job describing your career and just how difficult it is. I, I've seen your split finger firsthand throwing it to uh, your players. It is nasty. And just the Red Sox who wanted to keep the ball down, like they told you, they wanted to keep the ball down from going out of Fenway and getting ball low. Split fingers and sinkers are excellent pitches. So to make you just – you know, get rid of that pitch and just change you as a person, change your identity as a ball player that you've known for your entire life each and every year. The mental toll on that is ridiculous. And I, I know you said you wish you could have uh, realized that a bit more during your minor league career, but it is just so difficult. And at the very end, as long as, you know, you take something for that and you incorporate in your life, and I think you've done that a really good job of that as well, then it seems to all have mattered and all have been worth it in the long run. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, hopefully if the people of my generation, uh, I'm old enough to say that now, um, you know, if we take our experience of what um, professional baseball and minor league baseball was like, and then apply that. And I see, uh, you know, being in the coaching community, uh, being back more immersed in it, I see a lot of, amazing, amazing coaches who understand how difficult that was and have adapted a, a, an approach that is just so much more um, loving and supporting and engaging and uh, genuinely player centric, like focused on building the relationship and really encouraging the players to be the best versions of themselves and, and, and not um, thinking, you know, it's my way or the highway and I'm going to put my stamp on you. Rather, I know that you already have 
an amazing stamp of talent and skills that I, I'm here just to help you refine that. I'm here to help you understand how you can make those strengths better and improve any weaknesses you have. And, you know, they might never be strengths, but at least they cannot be so debilitating that um, they cost us a ball game or, you know, whatever the case may be. This individual aspect of baseball is has certainly grown over the years. I, I actually read uh, Barry Zito's autobiography recently, and he was playing guitar in the dugouts during his career all the time. And people just were not accepting of that at first, just as simple as just playing guitar. And then you also mentioned the fact mm -hmm. of like, you know, just, you know, your baseball athletic ability of the person that you are and just the pitches that you feel comfortable with. And I think we've seen this, this good trend of, okay, we're going to help refine your skills rather than just change it all together. Yeah, I think, you know, that's probably something that I've had to grow in um, and many other coaches probably uh, as well. Um, you know, my, my first time at Allegheny, uh, we kind of had drills and I, I made most of the pitchers kind of throw almost the same way. Like I wasn't hard line about it, but I certainly had some some pretty strong thoughts on how you do things. Um and, you know, we had, and even now, I mean, every team has standards, right? Yeah. You, you have to have, a, have standards of excellence that you're pursuing together, but inside those standards, if you don't have the room to allow people to be who they are, um, you're probably not, uh, in our case, um, you're not going out and recruiting the right people, right? Mm -hmm. You're not recruiting the t kinds of people who will be able to be themselves yet blend into the team and be great teammates. And so as long as people can do that, as, right, we're, we're very happy to let individuals be individuals, goofy, um, fun, loving, you know, all those things are important to a team, right? You have to have, uh, you know, uh, I know as a, uh, Yankee fan. We'll, we'll get into some tense uh, conversation here, but right, you look at that. You look at that 2004 Red Sox team that won the World Series. That you know, they're a bunch of lovable goofballs, right? <laughs> and just th they talked collectively as a team about how for them, you know, just being loose and you know, kind of being known as the goofballs helped their identity and helped kind of take some of the pressure off of them because that was their collective personality, and you know, some you have to identify how to blend all of those things into the right mix and right chemistry. And when it comes together, you know it, and it's uh, exciting and awesome to be a part of. And when somebody is off doing their own thing and detracting from the team, it's easy to pick up on that too. And, and so, you know, I think a lot of times you think, well, we're just going to get rid of that person. Um, but that's where we're coaching and building the right environment within your team construct are, are critical because uh, obviously, you know, there are some very talented baseball players who get misunderstood even at the professional level. And, you know, you look at a guy like Trevor Bauer, right. For a long time, it was like, this dude is nuts <laughs> and he's still nuts, you know, probably to many people, but he's, he's intelligent and he's, thinking through things and he's, he's just wired a different way, you know, and, and that's okay. 
that's okay. You just have to find a way to blend that in. And if he were to become a distraction, which is what I'm assuming the Indians felt like uh, he had become, uh, you know, before they moved into the Reds, uh, then you've got to understand that in your team team culture. But um, I, I think now more than ever, people just want to be accepted for who they are. And that is not a bad thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, obviously, if you have a severe psychosis, then that's something that probably needs addressed. But being uniquely you, um, that's who you were created to be, right? That's who the mm-hmm. uh, divine power, God, uh, whoever you uh, choose to identify that uh, source as, uh, you were, we all uh, were created uh, uniquely and specifically. And that's a good thing. Embrace who you are. <laughs> That's very well said. It is really fascinating how these converging philosophies come together of how you mentioned the 2004 Red Sox, who they themselves have called them uh, a band of idiots, even though they won the World Series. Look at the 2013 Red Sox as well, just every one of them being a goofball, having this great facial hair. So Red Sox are a perfect example of it. And just team culture, you want all the you know, each player to be unique to show their personality, but at the same time, you have to hold them to that standard of excellence that you described and how you have all the pitchers do certain types of drills. I'm sure all the hitters go through some types of drills as well. They, you know, do the kind of a similar weight training program. So it is really fascinating how you have this kind of assimilation at the same time. It's to an extent, an assimilation in the sense that, well, each one member of the team have to uphold the team values and represent their organization at the same time, freedom to let them be themselves. Um, that helps the team. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great summary of, of the comments. If I would have <laughs> just said that we would have saved ourselves five minutes. <laughs> All good. <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> um, I also want to get into a little bit more about your minor league career. A couple of uh, some more fun questions. So yeah. like, who is your favorite teammate or person in the minors and who is your toughest out in the minors? Yeah, I guess I, I probably should have answered some of those questions in the uh, <laughs> original one that you asked me about some, you know, my, my, you know, some of the experiences and some of the better things that happened. Um, I, I brought, I brought out the, the low lights. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it's, it's entertaining because I, I don't know why I always think of kind of some of the low lights, but um I was recruiting in Jamestown. So the Jamestown Jammers, their perfect game, summer collegiate league team, they were um, Expos minor league affiliate um, in the New York Penn League at one point in time. So um, if you can envision their stadium, you know, regulation field, 330, 400 and something to center field. And then another probably... 50 yards beyond left center field is the uh, Jamestown high school. And uh, so one glorious night in July, uh, I decided that I was feeling pretty good and I had, had good juice on, on the fastball. And uh, so I was ripping fastballs by, by guys. And uh, so I figured, you know, this next guy that's coming up, he's going to get the same thing. He's, he's going to get the gas and this is, it's game over. Um, throw a fastball. I hear crack. I hang my head. And I, I you know, you, you know, as a pitcher, there are just some of those ones, you know, it's gone. And so I hung my head 
had time to turn around after hanging my head and see the ball land on top of the roof of the school. Uh, so uh, that guy was Vlad Guerrero. What and, the heck? Uh, so uh, that was probably, I mean, I know that StatCast and some of these things project things at 500. It, it had to be close to 500. It was an unbelievable shot. I mean, he just crushed it. Um, so, uh, you know, that would be one of the lowlights. And so I was, I always tell my, my own sons uh, about entertaining stories like that. Um, you know, got to play against Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter, uh, I struck Derek Jeter out. Uh, now Derek Jeter got nine hits off of me out of 10, uh, you know, probably plate appearances, but I did strike Derek Jeter out. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll stick with that one. Um, I, uh, played, so I played with, um, a great team in, in 95 in Trenton. Um, if you, if you look at that roster, just some, uh, littered with, uh, guys that, that played professionally, uh, my, my manager, Ken Maka, was, uh, you know, major league manager um, for a few years. Uh, Al Nipper, who was our pitching coach, ended up uh, being a, in the big leagues as a pitching coach. Nomar garcia Parra's on that team. Jeff Supon, Trot Nixon, Lou Merloni, um, Ron Mayhay, uh, Ryan McGuire, Shane Bennett. Um, just unbelievable uh joe hudson all those guys made it to the big leagues and uh just unbelievable team uh and I'm, i i'm probably forgetting a couple other guys on that team that made it um you know not necessarily impactful uh major league careers but at least you know we're up for a cup of coffee better than what i did um so um you know i i i almost threw a no hitter uh early early in the season of 95 ended up uh throwing a one hitter, um, at, at home. And that was just a, a special moment. Uh, Merloni made a diving attempt at this ball up the middle. It went off his glove and, uh, it was a hit. It was, I mean, it was, it was a hit, no, no doubt about it. So I'm not lamenting the fact, uh, <laughs> that it was, that it was scored a hit because it truly was, but, uh, Lou was distraught. Lou was my, uh, roommate the year before when we played in Sarasota together. And, and so we, we had developed a close relationship and he was just like a mess after the game that he didn't get to that ball. Um, but uh, so that was, that was, a, that was a highlight for sure. Um, <clears throat> just seeing uh, some of the amazing players, um, you know, I, I could go through a list uh, Jay Payton, Benny Agbiani, um, David Ortiz, uh, you know, I, I can go through a list of guys that I played against uh, and with, and, and that, what a great honor that is, you know, even though I, I didn't ultimately measure up to the level that they were at, just to be on the field with them and to see them as they developed as players was an awesome, awesome experience. Um, and I think probably the, the, the thing that I will take um, from my baseball experience the most is, um, so 97 was my, my last full year, um, back in Trenton, um, made it up to AAA for a little bit, um, during that season, but had what would statistically be a successful season. Um, it's end of July, early August, my shoulder starts feeling like garbage and, uh, 
so just kind of sucked it up, figured, you know, it is what it is getting towards the end of the season. Um, and so finally it gets to the point where I'm like, somebody's got to check this out. Um, so they do the MRI, they see the, you know, tear and tear in the labrum. And so our doctors are like, well, we can <clears throat> shut you down and you can, um, have the surgery right now or you can wait uh, till the end of the season and it's probably not going to get any worse than what it is. Um, we were in a playoff run and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to suck it up. I'm going to be there for my team. And um, we ended up making the playoffs, didn't win the Eastern league. It was disappointing, but um, was what it was. And then when they went in to do the surgery, I did something to compensate my mechanics to overcome the pain and ended up, having a tear on the front and the back. And, and so it was uh, just a little bit bigger of a mess, but you know, that, that that's what, I, that's what I just always hope that every part of me and my life reflects is that I'm willing to make those sacrifices for my team. And I think that's uh, undervalued uh, in, in the game and in life uh, being able to do that. And so I appreciate and have great respect um, for all of the people in all walks of life who that's their mentality. I'll, I'll sacrifice, um, for the good of the whole and for the good of other people. Those people earn my respect to the nth degree. And there are a lot wow. of them. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's, it's amazing how throughout your minor league career, there's the, you mentioned the highs and lows. So like, for example, you got to face Vlad Guerrero, but gave it that 500 foot home run, which, you know, happens. And he's, an, of course, a hall of famer. And that's so cool that you got to face, you faced Jared Jeter and you struck him out, but also given on hits. Like it's amazing the highs and lows of a minor leader or like how 97 was your last year. Uh, right. Yep. In Sarasota. Yeah. Like how you, you went out and you gave, everything you had i mean you were pitching through pain and i think that's a very underrated part of baseball pitching through pain and just trying to get through the season and you did what was what you felt was right and what you wanted to do to help the team and then afterwards that was that of your minor league career so it's amazing how each step of the way you gave sacrifices you were humble and how you just just want to do everything you can for your team which is really an amazing quality yeah, I wish I could say that it was uh, all all benevolent. I think that um, you know being in the minor leagues is hard, and I'm pretty candid about this. Uh, it's the most bizarre environment ever. Like, who comes up with a team concept like this? That essentially you're on a team and you're trying to win with your teammates, but at the same time, the guy to your right and to your left, you're competing to get to the next step. So you're competing against one another in the truest sense to get to where you all dream of being. But at the same time, you're trying to achieve a collective goal. And man, there were far too many times where I didn't have that approach. Like I, and I think ultimately it, it cost me. Um, it cost me the joy uh, of some of my career of not embracing um, that ability to say, you know what, I don't have to depend on somebody else failing or to, you know, see myself elevated. And 
if I would have understood that and embraced it before 1997, I, I think I would have been in a much better position. Well, I think so far, or just really the entire podcast, you've done a great job of explaining how difficult and how crazy and insane the minor leaguers are. Um, hold on one second. I just got to plug my computer in before it dies. So I'll continue talking as I go to my charger. Um, but there's this recent trend with the minors, a recent occurrence in the minor leagues in that how uh, they're being underpaid and a lot of major league teams are releasing a lot of these minor leaguers as well. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on that too. Yeah, I think it's disappointing anytime um, you see people lose jobs. Um, anytime you see somebody's dream potentially come to an end, uh, you know, hopefully those guys uh, have an ability to catch on somewhere, but in the current climate with, you know, independent leagues and, and everything contracting because of the, of the virus. It's just, it's just a tough situation. And, you know, I see it on the Twitter, Twitter sphere. I see the, you know, the, the angst of, you know, people who do real jobs, right. People who drive a truck or, you know, or plumbers or whatever, right. They've, they've got to do difficult jobs and hard labor and, challenging conditions it's not playing a game and mm -hmm. and so i understand um because i've done those jobs too um so i understand that you know it's it's easy to kind of dismiss um minor leaguers and be like yeah whatever um you don't really know what real work is or how hard the real world is um but they're doing what i think everybody is desirous to do Right. No matter where you are or what your position or job title is, you you have dreams and aspirations, and um, sometimes those dreams get buried under circumstances or difficulty or, or whatever. Um, and I feel awful for anyone who has had dreams crushed unfairly or unjustly. That's that's probably the worst uh, punishment I think a person can receive. And I think it's inhumane uh, because I think sometimes people do that to other people. And that's uh, a, a special kind of cruelty. Um, but specifically to those minor leaguers, you know, I think that you're never going to see the wages um, be equitable until um, the minor leaguers are part of the major league players association union, or they have their own union where there's some sort of equivalency of representation. Um, you know, I, the most money I ever made was $1,100 a month over, you know, the five, six month season. You know, I, I my first year I made 700 bucks a month, you know, so I, and then you have to go and get a job. I, so I, I, you know, I, I understand and I'm not one to say, well, that's how it was for me. So, you know, suck it up and deal with it. Um, hopefully it becomes better. Um, maybe a re I think, you know, we're starting to engage in a rethinking of the minor league system uh, of saying maybe we can pay a few guys more money and recognize that there's a different kind of, uh, sorting out sifting through process than than what the traditional minor league system has been 
And I don't think that necessarily means we have to eliminate all the opportunities for people because guys develop it at different stages. I mean, you see um, guys 24, 25, 26, who all of a sudden, you know, as pitchers make a big velo jump or, you know, as hitters, something just clicks physically and they just start mashing the ball. Um, And if they don't have opportunities to do that, um, you know, that's going to limit the ultimate end product. So, Maybe it's finding more opportunities in Korea. Maybe it's, you know, expanding baseball in Italy and, you know, throughout Europe in, in different parts so that there's more of a global expansion rather than just viewing it as myopically um, American minor league baseball. Um, you know, cause I know a lot of people are like, ah, oh, the independent leagues will grow. Well, you know, there's only so much saturation probably that you can, assume on, on that as well. And so um, hopefully we're able to rethink the system, make college baseball better, um, you know, make uh, that, that product, uh, you know, selfishly as a, a division three player and coach, you know, it'd be great to, to tear down some of the barriers of thinking that division three baseball is some, you know, redheaded stepchild to division one baseball. And granted Allegheny college is not going to go out and beat, um, you know, UCLA and TCU and yeah, we would, we would probably get thumped around by those teams. We're, we're not at that level, but yet, you know, it's, it's a very, very good brand of baseball that's played, um, at the division three level. And I'm pretty sure if we threw tree out there against those guys, we might have a shot. We might have a shot. um, you know, so, uh, I think that, uh, probably just, is a good moment in history to hit the reset button, to have some good, honest, analytical evaluation of the system and say, how can we make it better? And hopefully um, some people who are in a position to make those decisions have the right voice and have the right wisdom to, to apply it um, so that the game can grow and so that people are, are treated fairly and yet still exist in opportunity. I think there is certainly a silver lining in a variety of different fields and factors during this virus. And I think one of them, at least in terms of baseball, is, you know, rethinking these systems like the minor leagues. Because, and, and it's sad to say that it took something of a thousand minor leaders being about, uh, about around a thousand minor leaders being released from their jobs to have this discussion or to see the growing impact of Korean baseball. And the American players who go over there and are trying to reshape their careers. And that's what these discussions are coming from. But I think they are important, hopefully, from this pandemic that we start to see like, okay, well, minor leaders are people too. They're going after the same dream. And although they might not be, you know, everyday people in the sense of plumbers or uh, blue collar, white collar people, they still are, you know, going after their aspirations and they they don't even get paid that much. So we got to rethink how these systems work and it's, it's important. And even at the NCAA level, like, you know, a lot of D three teams are right. They're not seen as highly as D one teams, which is definitely understandable to an extent, but they're still legitimate ball players. You mentioned tree, uh, one of our finest uh, ball players at Allegheny College who throws 94 from the left-hand side. He's a very legitimate pitcher. So a lot of good talent still comes from D3. And 
of good talent still comes from the minor leagues, and it's it's sad to say that they're an afterthought sometimes. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I'd actually be curious to hear, you know, a little bit of your uh, your position and experience, you know, knowing that you have a connection to, you know, the Israeli national team and, and some other things, and seeing seeing baseball on that international level, um, you know, what what would be potentially the value of growing growing the game globally by you know, sending some of these minor leaguers to play in a, in a European league with other aspiring players from those areas, you know, does that then elevate the, the ability of the Israeli national team who, you know, they made the world baseball classic and, you know, definitely um, not, not bad baseball by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, does it just improve some of those teams that would be considered maybe in a, a second tier relative to, you know, U.S. and uh, Latin American countries that play in the World Baseball Classic to see to see a, a kind of a natural rising tide of just being around better players, right? Ultimately, that's what makes those Division One programs at the top level as good as they are. It's because you have... 20 plus very, very good players versus, you know, a division three team where you might have a roster of 35 and you have 12, 13 really good players. So, you know, ultimately your goal at every level is just to keep elevating the, the, the whole, the collective ability of the whole. So I, I think there's just some awesome things that, that we could explore as a baseball community that might make baseball on the global level better. Um, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day and they're like, oh, the Korean baseball, that's not very good. It's blah, blah, blah. Like, it's not very bad either. Um, you know, it's not very bad either. But if you had maybe you know, a few more, a few more minor leaguers or a few more American players, international players who, who viewed that as a good option. You might see that league really, you know, become booming. Well, I just from personal experience and just look, you know, following uh, the KBO, the Korean baseball organization online, seeing whatever I can from Twitter and just seeing how players all over the world are dealing with this pandemic. I mean, I think we could very much see a lot more international baseball happening. For for example, in the uh, uh, Israel Israel Association of Baseball, like a lot of high school kids probably would not meant end up at D three, but we do they do produce some players who are trying to go to the states and trying to play. Um, one of my good friends there ended up playing for um, a JUCO in Michigan, which is excellent. And a couple of players that I played against are on the uh, Israeli national team for the Olympics, which is amazing. So, you know, even though if it's not maybe the highest tier of baseball, probably, for example, NCAA D3 is not as high as D1. KBO might not be as high as even AAA in the minors. They're still great organizations. And even if they are not as highly touted, they bring this amazing experience because they take you around the world in a different culture, which is also, which is always great. But they also... Still provide good baseball, and if you still want to come back, and you have really good seasons over there, you always go back to American baseball. You always develop baseball in other countries, so there's really no harm from it. It only produces these amazing opportunities. 
Yeah, as, as I'm as I'm thinking and I'm hearing you talk, you know what 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 potentially could be the next trend in baseball, right? We we never we didn't see the data analytics revolution and all the shifts, right? That's a recent construct of baseball, but what's happening in baseball in Korea that might become a new trend in in major league the major leagues, you know, three, four, five years from now. What's happening? What development piece is going on in Israel to elevate the the quality of baseball <clears throat> player there that could be incorporated into what goes on here, right? To to have this more global reach to the sport, which I think is would be valuable um, since we base those of us who love love baseball and still consider baseball America's pastime, um, you know, we want to see the game grow. Um, and I think that those markets <clears throat> provide a great opportunity. Like <clears throat> if you had a, 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 you know, European league and I'm, I'm sure they do. And we just don't have the, the awareness of it. Um, but you have more, <clears throat> more American players, more minor leaguers looking for opportunities who, who go there and then embrace it in such a way that, you know, it's, just elevating the collective, right? I, I guarantee you that there would be people who went and played in Europe and loved it and stayed there. And then all of a sudden they become coaches in that environment. You know, they, they take things that they've learned from here and there. Uh, you start to see people, um, uh, gosh, Straley, right. Uh, who, who plays yeah. in, in the KBO Dan Straley. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm, I'm sure that, like you have all of this influence of like what he learned from driveline baseball and all of those things that are now going to Korea. And then he's going to come back, you know, in the off season and be like, Hey, here's some of the cool things that I saw. And, and, and I think that, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head that there could be this really cool globalization and growth and exposure um, that would help maybe, maybe heal some of the tensions that we all experience not understanding people that are different than us by creating a broad base um, for people who are in player development, front office, um, people like yourself who are into, uh, you know, the broadcasting and, and some different things like get those people into different cultures, get a variety of leagues around the world um, where you're doing an internship in, in, you know, European baseball one year, Japanese baseball the next, and then you're going to school somewhere in America. What well, I mean, that's awesome that now you've, you've, uh, you know, created this globalized exposure. And I think ultimately, um, probably some of the tensions that we experience are because we don't understand other people and other cultures, or we're, afraid at, at some level of, of understanding them because they're different than what our normal experience is. And, and man, I, I always think that sports can be a, a healing source. So we, we need baseball to, to be a, and sports to be a healing source right now. To kind of bring this back full circle <laughs> a little bit, we talked about these converge, converging philosophies, the standard of excellence versus the individuality. And even to take it one step further, the standard of excellence of baseball in America versus baseball in other countries. So yeah. for example, in the KBO, you see umpires having the time of their life 
punching out someone when they strike out batters, which I would love to see more. You see batters pimping singles everywhere they go. You know, something that's not seen as too, too highly here in American baseball or even in Israeli baseball, the 16U team, they traveled to Prague and they wanted, wanted chip there and they sang one of the Israeli national anthems after they won. Just all this emotional and really fascinating stuff, this cultural and globalized um, uniqueness that you don't get to see every day. And that very well could be the future of baseball, which would be very exciting and very unique. And that could be the way forward. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think that it's it's awesome to see, and uh, yeah, it, it definitely is entertaining to see the uh, the umpires uh, elevate their game uh, in terms of uh, ringing people up. As a, as a, as a, as a pitcher, you love that, right? You punch somebody out, you want to see the umpire get into it, be as excited as you are. Um, uh, you know, I think there's there's a there's a few ways to go with that. You know, you you, you brought up the the story of the. Israeli national team. And I think there's, I think there's something that is a great sense of pride. Um, everybody has a great sense of pride to play for their country. And so I, I really appreciate the world baseball classic and, um, you know, baseball coming back to the Olympics. So that's, that's exciting, um, uh, internationally for the game. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, as you said, you know, maybe, maybe it's, it is, um, adapting baseball on a global level, but also even, even here in America, right. There's always the debate over how you handle it. You know, there's the, what was it? The let the kids play yeah, yeah. <laughs> commercial. Right. And, and so then people get heated, like you don't show the pitcher up or this, that or the other thing. And then the other person says, well, the pitcher shouldn't have thrown such a bad pitch. And you know, it's a chicken or the egg argument. Again, it, like to me, those things go back to where's the space that you can allow individuals to be who they are. Um, you know, uh, was it, yeah. So it was last year, um, Louisville's playing Vanderbilt. Um, Louisville pitcher is using some choice words and he's kind of fired up after striking out some Vanderbilt guys. He's, he's dominating them. He's dicing them up and it would have been the end of Vanderbilt's run and that got them fired up and, <laughs> and they came back and, and laid it on him and they were, they were letting him have it too. Um, so, you know, even in like the, the college game is clearly different than professionals and there've just always been these unwritten rules and kind of the way you do things as a professional isn't, you know, that little league Mickey mouse college stuff. And, um, yet, you know, I think we're, we're emotional beings and maybe, maybe people need to see that. Uh, and maybe that would be something that would elevate the popularity of baseball is to actually just see the genuine emotion of it come out and and everybody's going to do that differently right if you're if you're a pitcher some some pitchers need that emotion they need to fuel it and stoke their own fire and you know be some kind of ticked off to to be effective and others they get ticked off they're totally out of their game they're a mess forget it and and so you're not just going to see this massive like everybody talking trash and bat flipping and you know all this other stuff but i think it's just saying let's be free 
and allow people to be who they are, understanding that everybody's going to be a little bit different. And when the emotion comes out, that's okay. That's okay. As I mentioned, just this uh, virus has really shown all these amazing, or like it's really shown like just this cultural and individual aspect that we need in the world and we need in baseball and we need in college ball too. So it is, it is really fascinating that all of these kind of important debates that could also be the future of baseball are really coming to life right now, such as, you know, Louisville, uh, uh, Villanova game. That was I, I saw clips of that. That was so fun of how, like, all right, one team got very emotional. The other one got emotional, and Villanova ended up winning that game. So it brings a whole other side of baseball, which, you know, baseball is such a traditionalist sport, and it's being very much revolutionized and very quickly, and that could be the future, and it's it could be very fun and unique to see how that all turns out. Yeah. I mean, it's... Uh... Ultimately, it's uh, another side of the mental game. You know, it's it's how, how do you handle that? If you how are you a person who understands who you are, and you're able to play within the construct of emotions that you need to be your best, um, right? I, I I remember playing college baseball and guys on our team being like expert hecklers, and it would get under the skin of the other team, and you would see some people. They would thrive. They would start playing better. They would be more focused. But then a few guys on that team would just fold, and they would be a mess because they were like they were um, they were emotionally engaged at such a level that was detrimental to their performance. And and so you you can just see it. And um, yeah, uh, I know that uh, playing in uh, Yankee Stadium always very innocuous the fans are very courteous never you know making any comments or uh, anything that might get under the skin of the opposing players so um, (laughs) it's it's just a part of the game and you know embracing it rather than uh, rejecting it probably would be the uh, best course of action if only every game was a blue and gold uh one on one (laughs) had allocated that the our colors are blue and gold or uh or is it, it's blue and gold, right? Just just yep. making sure. And the players are just going at it the entire time. It's a different type of baseball. And it's, it's very freeing. And we, we could see a lot more of that for sure. Uh, but that is all the time we have for today. Coach Pete, thank you so much for this excellent talk and for coming on the show. It's really nice to have you on. Yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity. It was great talking to you. As I said, I... Uh, appreciate you as a person. You're a a passionate young man. I think you got a great future ahead of you, no matter where the the path takes you, because you, 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 you strike me as somebody who's willing to make the sacrifice and put in the hard work and, and do what's necessary to be the best. And, and that's going to, that's going to shine. That's going to shine for the rest of your life. So uh, I'm thankful for you, Adam. Thankful to be able to know you and have some time to talk. Well, that means the world to me coming from you, Coach Pete. Thank you so much. I appreciate you too. This is not goodbye. This is see you later until next time. That's right. The Eight City View Podcast.